are many ways to uh, become biblically literate, I suppose, but one is to sing. And we could sing this uh, together. Learn this song with me. Now, I had this dramatic beginning sitting down at the piano, and I realized I forgot to bring my little clicker, which is over there somewhere. <laughs> oh, all right. Those words, water, let it drift out a little longer, okay? Don't let it sort of uh, disappear so quickly. Try this again. Right here. music is it's call and response. So I'll do the call, you'll be the response, and I may sing any number of things, don't be alarmed, you're just going to sit, continue singing. <laughs> Wait in the water, children. And then I'll sing something else, I'm a trained professional, do not be alarmed, and you'll just sing, God's gonna trouble the water. Those children dressed in red. Must be the children that Moses led. God's gonna trouble
that city paved with gold. We'll never die and we won't grow. So, how do we read the Bible? What does it mean to read the Bible? If it only means reading the Bible, I don't think we've actually read the Bible. You've got to sing the Bible. <laughs> You've got to sing the Bible because the Bible is built around songs. And, and it's built in particular, you could say, around two songs. And the ultimate question of reading the Bible is, do you believe these songs? And they are Miriam's songs. Do we believe Miriam's song? I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider, he has thrown into the sea. This is the song of victory and vindication after the army of Pharaoh of Egypt is dashed against the rocks of the exposed bed of the Red Sea. And then the waters flow back, cover all of Pharaoh's army, horsemen, and chariots. And on the far bank of the Red Sea, according to Exodus 15, Moses, the Israelites, and Miriam, Moses' sister-in-law, the wife of Aaron, Sing this hymn of praise to God. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider has he thrown into the sea. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the God narrated in Scripture actually overcame the military, economic, and technological might of the most powerful empire of that time. 
How can we believe that? Dare we believe that? Is it possible to believe that? What would it mean if we did believe that? And then you actually have to ask about another Miriam song. So we don't usually call her Miriam, but this is what everyone would have called her, Miriam. A young girl living in Palestine at roughly the turn of the eras as we count them today, visited in this painting by the American artist Henry Osawa Tanner by an angel who Tanner wisely decides not to attempt to paint <laughs> and simply renders as a pillar of light. And this young girl hears the most astonishing message and very properly asks a few follow-up questions. <laughs> How shall I be? How shall this be, since I do not know a husband? And after being satisfied with the angel's answer, she says, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be it to me according to your will. Four months later, she's pregnant. She goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who she hasn't seen in a long time. Arrives at Elizabeth's house to find Elizabeth that's pregnant in her old age with the cousin of Mary's baby. And then she sings this song, Miriam 2.0. I thought I was in San Francisco. I should call it Miriam 2.0. <laughs> my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Do you see, do you sense that the song that Miriam of Bethlehem and Nazareth sings is in fact an echo of the song that Miriam, the sister-in-law of Moses, sang? Very similar themes, very similar arc of uh, sort of overturning power. He scattered the, the proud, says Miriam 2.0, echoing the scattering of the chariots of Egypt. And Mary, we call her, the mother of Jesus, echoes another Mary's song and says, this is what the world is really like. This is what God is really like. And the question is, do we believe Miriam's song? It leads to kind of descriptive questions, descriptive questions and prescriptive questions. Descriptive ones like, is it the case that the God narrated in scripture has triumphed over military, economic, and technological power, horse and rider style power? Is that in any sense descriptively true of our world? What kind of power is being spoken of here? What kind of power triumphs over military, economic, and technological power? Is it just more of the same kind of power that is more bigger military and technological power, so God is like the super-duper pharaoh with more impressive armies and armaments? 
Or could it be that this power that Miriam 1 and 2 sing is a different kind of power altogether? And who are the people who bear that different kind of power? Where can you find this overturning, conquering power? And then we can ask, so those are just descriptive questions. Does this exist in the world? What does it look like? Who are the people who live it? And then you can ask these pres more prescriptive questions. What does this mean for us? What do we do if we live in the absolute center of the very kind of power that the two Miriams say has been overthrown? What do we do if we find ourselves with ambition, certain kinds of power, certain kinds of privilege that neither Miriam ever could have had or imagined, living at the center of an empire whose technological, economic, and military might is, makes, makes the Egypt that Israel celebrated uh, Egypt's defeat, it makes Egypt look like a third-rate little backwards tribal people compared to the empire we live in, at the center of whose empire we live in, the empire that has given us so much to possess and so much to hope for. What do we do if we live in the very place where worldly power seems most effective, most efficacious, most plausible, but we become somehow convinced that that power is in fact thin and peripheral and in some sense ultimately doomed? This requires us to read the Bible, I think, in a different way. It requires us to read the Bible as, I was, I was thinking about this today, read the Bible as a dissident text. The Bible is a dissident text because at every stage of the composition of Scripture, the people of God are surrounded by far more powerful empires. You, it's amazing the list of empires that intersected with Israel, partly, partly because Israel was given by God a land that I think of as the truck stop of the ancient Near East is on this little crescent of land uh, east of the Mediterranean, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan, every empire that seeks to dominate uh, geostrategically that area is interested in that tiny piece of land, and they all roll through there with their armies and their commerce. It's either the best place to be in the ancient Near East or absolutely the worst, because Egypt wants that land, then Assyria wants that land, then Babylon wants that land, then a I, uh, I got a Syria. Then Persia wants that land. Then Greece wants that land. Then Rome wants that land. And they all get it, one way or another. Thank you, Lord, for your promised land. <laughs> and this tiny little people ekes out an existence, sometimes with certain measures of success, sometimes with uh, utter conquest. And all the while, they compile this book of books that offers a totally different account of the world from any empire around them. It's a dissonant text, dissident text, but it's also, if, we have to, if we're gonna be honest, it's a dissonant text. Within it is a certain kind of dissonance because Israel pursues its own consolidation of power. Israel is invited to conquer the land. It's given land occupied by people. And the song that Moses and, and the people sing, uh, if we had time to look at it in detail in Exodus 15, celebrates the fact that Israel will displace and subsume the residents of Canaan. 
Israel will eventually establish a line of kings, not exactly with the endorsement of God, but with the permission of God. Israel will become a minor but real political, economic, and military force, and will celebrate those moments of the consolidation of power under the Davidic king. And so part of the history of the composition of this book of books are these moments, you could call them, of occupation, of successfully occupying a position of power and celebrating that occupation. Shall we switch something or other? I am feeling my power coming and going. <laughs> we'll try that. So are you following so far? On the one hand, at moments, like the Sol Solomon's establishment of the temple with, with riches from all over the world, Israel is like, oh my goodness, look how great Yahweh is. He's given us our own little mini empire here. This is beautiful. But the other thread is that Israel also fails to occupy the land with the right kind of power, and this leads, in the prophets telling to their conquest, leads actually to their exile, so that these books are also compiled and take their final form at a moment of the absolute loss of power, when the best of Israel has been sent off to captivity in Babylon. And of course, Jesus arrives and the New Testament is compiled under the shadow of Rome. Babylon and Rome, the two great empires that shadow the composition of the Bible we read and who seemed at the time each testament of our Bible was written to be absolutely inviolably powerful. And the dissonance between the power we once knew in our little land and the lack of power we now experience as exiles drives the composition of the Old Testament and the New Testament. This could be helpful to us as American Christians, who on the one hand, for the moment, occupy a very central place in the configuration of power in our world, and yet also sense that that empire is more fragile than it would like to see itself as. And it might be helpful to us as Christians in America, who for a season, at least some kinds of Christians could imagine that they occupied a very central place and now we find ourselves in a kind of exile. It could be that this Bible speaks very powerfully to us with a better picture of power. So I want to talk for the next few minutes about three questions that it seems to me, though they're never quite stated this um, simply, it seems to me these three questions animate the whole sweep of the Bible. And as you read the Bible, you find these things coming up over and over again. So question number one is, what is true power? What is the truest, deepest, realest form of power? And the Bible, being the Bible, answers this question not primarily by giving you uh, political philosophy or political theory, which is the way we moderns study power, but instead it gives us poetry, liturgy, and ultimately a song. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void while darkness was on the face of the deep, while a spirit, or breath, or wind, all the same word in Hebrew, from God hovered over the water. 
Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And God saw that the light was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This, of course, is page one of the Hebrew Bible in its final form. And what you have to understand in order to read that page as a dissident, dissonant text is to understand that every other creation narrative in the ancient Near East was a conflict narrative, was in fact a narrative of violence. And, and all the other myths, all the other creation myths around Israel, including the dominant myth of Babylon, were myths of creation through violence. So the Enuma Elish, which is the epic of Babylon that we happen to have uh, rediscovered in this past century, uh, so we actually know now what the story was that Babylon told and what everyone heard. Um, tells the story of Marduk. Marduk is kind of the hero of this part of the Enuma Elish. He's a demigod, the real god, in, the kind of ultimate god in the Enuma Elish would never get involved in creating something as small as a universe. Uh, the real god is not interested in little stuff like the world we inhabit. But Marduk... Um, is, is sort of the demigod whose, whose agency leads to the creation of the world. And it happens when he enters into a battle with a goddess called Tiamat, who's portrayed as a giant fish. She's like a giant, giant sea serpent. And Tiamat represents disorder. She's the goddess of chaos. It's no accident, by the way, that Marduk is male and is the god of order, and Tiamat is female and is the goddess of chaos. This is how the ancient Near East conceived of the genders. And Marduk enters into battle with Tiamat, and he slays Tiamat. And having slain Tiamat, he fillets Tiamat. <laughs> and the upper, so he slices her in half. And the upper half of Tiamat becomes the sky. And the lower half of Tiamat becomes the earth. So if you're a Babylonian child, uh, so if you're a five-year-old Babylonian child, or whatever age children are where they start to ask about, about the world, you walk out under the you know, ancient Near Eastern heavens, no artificial light, see that just astonishing canopy of sky. And you say, Mommy, what am I looking at? And she says, well, that's the upper half of a slain goddess of chaos. <laughs> and you say, well, oh, okay, Mommy, but, but what are those twinkling things? Those look pretty. And she says, oh, my child, and this is the, in the Enumelish, those are the congealed drops of blood that oozed out of her corpse. Okay, Mommy, and uh, what happened to the other half? Oh, my child, that's the ground we're walking on. And mommy, what are we, we human beings? My child, this is what the Enumelish says, we are the congealed drops of blood that oozed out of the lower half of the corpse. That's what human beings are. Do you sense what this is? It's a narrative of creation as a byproduct of violence, of divine conflict. And every ancient creation myth had this story that the world came into being as the byproduct of conflict and violence. In total contrast to God spoke and God saw and it was good. And then God waited a day and they spoke again and he saw again and it was good again. There's no conflict in Genesis 1. 
Because there is ultimately no principle of disorder strong enough to oppose the God of creative power. And incidentally, in case I, I don't want to forget this, <laughs> in a moment when we get to the image bearers, when this God creates his image bearers, he creates them male and female. Rather than female being opposed to godliness, female is actually intrinsically imaging with male god godlikeness. Radically different. Everyone in the ancient Near East believed the Babylonian myth. And here the people of Israel are, and they say, no, no, no. Let me sing you a song about how it happened. Let me just draw attention to something. So these conflict narratives are built on this kind of linear conception of disorder and order. But the Bible looks at it a different way. And instead, order is one feature of creation. So the first three days of Genesis are each ordering days or structuring days, which is to say on day one, God creates light and dark. On day two, God creates heaven and earth. And on day three, God creates sea and land. So it's these very basic divisions of realms. Then on day four, five, and six, though, it goes back and it maps. Each day maps to the day three days before. So day four maps to day one, five to two, six to three. And what happens on days four, five, and six is each of those realms of order is filled with abundance. So on day four, corresponding to day one, light and dark, which, by the way, this is crazy. We now look at the world and we, we think that the simplest way to represent the world is digitally, right? Uh, units of one and zero, signal and no signal. It's amazing that day one in Genesis is signal and no signal, light and dark. The most basic division possible is where it starts. But then on day four, God fills the realm of light and dark with these great lights, the sun and the moon, but also this unbelievable profusion of stars that that Babylonian child looked up at. So God doesn't actually just want one sun and one moon. God's like, how about if we just make like trillions of them? And you look up in the sky just as a natural human being with the capacities available to the human eye, and you think there must be millions of stars up there. And then we look at them now with telescopes and we say, There's, it's not just billions of stars. Most of those things we think are stars are actually galaxies, and each of them has billions of stars. And this is how much abundance God wants, even just filming, filling the most basic realm of light and dark. Day five, corresponding to day two, the heavens and the earth start to teem, or Genesis 1 says, swarm with creatures. Not just a few creatures, all these different kinds of creatures start swarming across the heavens and the earth. And then on day six, uh, the first part of day six is the filling of the land with creatures that teem and swarm on the land. So here's something interesting. I, my, one of my favorite things to do is two by twos, so let's do one. If you have neither order nor abundance, you have nothing, right? Nihil, creatio ex nihilo, creation on nothing. Neither structure nor filling. If you have abundance without order, you have my teenage daughter's bedroom, which I would call chaos. Where there's a, there is teeming in my daughter's bedroom, but there's not a lot of structure. But what if you have order without abundance? I would call that a machine. A machine is a system that is so carefully structured that it never produces anything unpredictable. <laughs> it's, and here's the interesting thing. The Enlightenment thought the universe was a machine. The modern conception of the world reaching its high watermark probably in the 19th century, thought what the world is, is it's like a big clock. Tick, 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 
operating very exactly according to laws of nature, right? But what's missing in a machine is freedom. A machine is not free. A machine always produces exactly the same thing. And that is not only not the world of Genesis, which what, what shall we call that? I'll call it cosmos. Let's call it cosmos, a world that has both order and abundance. And then in the 20th century, we find out that this is actually our world because we discover quantum mechanics. And we realize at its deepest level, the world cannot be represented as a machine. You can do that at the level of classical mechanics, but you get down to the deepest structure of the world and you have to represent it as possibilities and probabilities, which are only realized when they are interacted with ultimately by an observer. That's crazy. The world is not a machine. It's a cosmos. Order and abundance, which means it is free, it has possibility, it has openness to the future, and it's available for teeming, unpredictable variety. This is the world God actually makes. All this suggests, and I think it was very intentionally designed to suggest by the writers of Genesis 1, that the deepest power in the world is not coercive power, it's creative power. The deepest power is not to be able to coerce or force the world into obeying you. It's to speak into being a world that has beings in it. It's to multiply possibility and indeed to multiply power. Because a coercive world, that linear world from disorder to order, is zero sum. If you need, and in fact we know, we actually know, if you look at our world this way now, you, because of the second law of thermodynamics, we know it's actually negative sum. That the only way you get order you coerce some part of the creation into more order, more machine-like behavior, but in order to do that, you have to throw off heat, which is unusable energy, which actually increases disorder somewhere else in the system. Wow. So we actually know it's not a world where you can just kind of make it more orderly. It actually is kind of tending towards disorderliness if you look at it in that frame. But the biblical worldview is actually God has made it so abundant that at another level, it just produces more and more possibility, more and more abundance. And to do that is much more powerful than just being able to coerce. If you could create like that, you could create in positive some ways. You could create games, this is game theory, right? That when people play, everybody wins because everybody gets more power because there's more possibility space available than we can possibly imagine in this world. Could it be the creative power is the true power? This leads to the next question that animates the Bible. Who is the true image? Where do we find a picture of this creative God? And of course, the answer is that we find it in the human beings God creates in his image. And there's this kind of amazing moment on day six of Genesis 1, because God has already filled the land with all these creatures. And so you think, well, day six, uh, day three's realm of order is filled with abundance. God can, you know, go to bed for the night. And instead, there's this bonus round on day six, that breaks the pattern. By the way, one of the most interesting things to look at in biblical uh, poetry is that they're constantly setting up patterns, setting up structure, and then breaking it. Because that's order and abundance. It, the literature of the Bible is not just machine-like, you know, uh, it's not like sort of doggerel that always has the same exact rhythm and rhyme. 
you'll get that pattern. Oh, I see how this is working. Day one, day four, day two, day five. Uh, God saw it was good. You, you hear it over and over. But then on day six, the pattern breaks, and God, who has been speaking impersonally, let there be, let there be, let there be on every day, suddenly speaks personally. Let us make. Where did that come from? <laughs> this is the founding text of monotheism. And yet here's the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's the most important thing Israel knows about God. And yet here's God saying, let us make human beings in our image and in the image of God he created them, male and female, that is plural in their very nature, he created them. And by the way, oh, I don't have time to go into this, but it's just too good not to mention, male and female are a further dimension of structuring of the world in a binary gender, but they are designed through sexual reproduction to lead to unpredictable variety, which is children. <laughs> because because we, we reproduce sexually along with many other creatures, and what happens in sexual reproduction is two highly structured genetic codes come together. It's basically digital, or is it base four? I don't know, GATC, I'm not sure what that is. It's you know very highly structured, essentially digital form of information encoded in proteins and nucleotides. And, and this highly structured information that's basically a code for producing other proteins is mixed together, and out of that perfectly ordered system, you get absolutely unpredictable results. Because we do not clone ourselves, we are not human-producing machines, we beget human beings, each of us in this room are different from our parents, and the amazing thing is, even if we're identical twins because of epigenetics, we're actually different even from our, the twins who share the same code. Genetically different. <laughs> That's amazing. All right. That was free. <laughs> Who is the true image? It's this male-female image-bearing complex that's introduced into the world at the climax of creation, at the, at the point of which God makes it. And instead of just saying, as he said every day before, it's good, God now says it's, I hope you know this, very good. Very good. Because now in the world, our creatures, what will they do? They will actually introduce further, further elements of ordering to the world and they will unlock further abundance in the world. This is what culture is. What culture is, is the human process of further structuring the world through memory, attention, reason, skill, ultimately through science and math and so forth. We discover ways to sort of structure the world, and within that, we discover the world has possibilities that you never could have imagined. And basically, in a, in a city like this, almost everyone in the city, one way or another, is employed in realizing all those possibilities that we discover now all the way down to the nanoscale of creation and are able to bring forth abundance from creation that was there all along, but until an image bearer comes along, it's latent, it's, it's implicit, it's tacit. And then we discover, my wife is a physicist, and she does these experiments with lasers where you bombard um, gallium arsenide and other semiconductors with femtosecond lasers. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And, uh, <laughs> And it produces, because of quantum mechanics ultimately, these amazing structures, just self-generating structures that turn out to be really good at capturing photons and turning them into electrons. And all that was present on day one of creation, but it's not until an image bearer comes along and says, let's invent a laser, which is highly structured light. Let's invent highly structured forms of uh, elements and molecules. I'm going to stop pretending I know what I'm talking about. Uh, and out of it comes this abundant possibility in the world. That's what we're here to do. And God says, this is great. Now my image bearers are here. The world is going to be further ordered. It's going to reveal more and more abundance. In a world where every god had an image, 
only Israel said human beings are the image. Every other religion around Israel and every other empire around Israel said, if you want to look for what God is like, you have to look at a thing. It could have been a statue of a little bull. It could have been a, a kind of a caricature of some aspect of humanity, like a, 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 an overly um, realized pregnant uh, figure, but with all the individual features removed and just the kind of pregnancy representing fertility. It was, it was these physical embodiments of certain aspects of creation that were thought to represent the divine principles in the world. Only Israel says, if you want to see the image of God, you have to look at a person. You have to look at persons in relationship in all of their complexity and beauty. And let me call attention to two things about these image bearers. They're given in Israel's scripture great authority. They're given dominion over the world. They're asked to rule the world. We, we have, we human beings, far more authority than any other creature. Think of that as capacity for meaningful action. We can do things at scales and with levels of intention that no other creature seems to be able to do. And at the same time, these creatures have more vulnerability than any other creature. The image bearers that God makes, strangely, not only have more authority than any other creature, but we also have more vulnerability. And I'm thinking of this in very basic ways to, to begin with. Think about the sequence of human development. And that when we are born as infants, I, last night I was with a college friend who has young children, uh, and her youngest is one. And he's not even talking yet. He's just at the stage when he can walk like this, which is so cute. He's like, look at me. Um, can't talk, can't feed himself, needs a bottle. Uh, completely dependent on his parents. And he'll be dependent for several more years in, in every possible way, right? And all of us were once there, which is crazy. When you look at a nice grown-up room like this and you think, we were all totally dependent on our parents. And then the length of human dependence on, on parents or other relations and family is lo far longer than any other creature. A baby lamb is born and within a few minutes or hours the baby lamb's up prancing about, you know, nurses for a couple months and then it's off to be a sheep. A human being is born, and for years, I believe the upper limit is now 35, is dependent on, <laughs> totally dependent on parental units, right? And the, it, and the more fully realized our culture becomes, the longer adolescence gets. It's actually, I mean, you can joke about it, but it's actually a function of cultural um, complexity that we require interdependence for longer and longer because it takes longer and longer to acquire kind of full fluency in the world that we've been given dominion over. So that dependence goes along with the authority we're given. And at the other end of our life, we're in senescence for longer than any other creature. Depend that is old age, dependent on uh, our families to care for us at the other end of life. The Bible images this in a really interesting way, in a different way, when it describes the man and the woman in the garden as naked, though without shame. And it occurred to me that there's no other creature we describe this way. Now, people have pointed out to me, there are naked mole rats, apparently. So there's one other creature. And there are also those hairless cats, which you can see on the internet. I do not recommend that you search for them because you'll never be able to unsee it. But so there are a couple other creatures that sort of analogously strike us as naked. But in fact, it's, it's really something we only say of human beings. Every other creature, that little baby lamb is born. You don't say, oh, a naked lamb. You know, wait till it puts on its sheep clothes. No, it's ready to go. We're not, ever. 
We're not complete in, in our physical existence. We all clothed ourselves to come to this meeting. Even in San Francisco, people clothe themselves, apparently. And having spent some time on the nude beaches of Greece, I have realized what a great gift clothing is uh, to 98% of the human race. To others, I like, you're just grateful that most people show up clothed. Trust me, don't, don't go to the new beaches of Greece. You will see British tourists baking in the sun like lobsters, and it will, it's worse than a hairless cat by a good margin. No other creature can be described that way. Could it be that what it is to bear the image of God is to be high authority, high vulnerability? That it's actually both together in some way that make us human. Now, this is not where we start out in the ideal human life. We start out with very little authority and very little vulnerability. So that little boy, Theo, who, who I visited last night, whose parents are able to provide for him in the way every parent would want to provide for their child, Theo has very little capacity for action, very little authority, but he's also incredibly protected by his parents. And that's where we're meant to start. And the Bible images this, too, by saying that the first human beings live in a garden protected, where even their nakedness is not ultimately uh, dangerous or vulnerable. But the goal of life as a child and indeed as a people is to move from safety to image bearing, to increase in authority and increase in vulnerability at the same time. And healthy parenting, you know, you give your kids a little more opportunity to try something, give them a little more opportunity to take risk. That's the way we were meant to be. And this is where it gets a little more complicated because there are two other options on this grid. So one would be to have vulnerability without authority. And I think the best word for that is poverty. Because in fact, when we look at the world that we actually have, most people have far more vulnerability than authority. Probably four to five billion people who share this planet with us Every day, their, their dominant reality is vulnerability with very little capacity for action. And then there would be one other corner. What would it be like to have authority without vulnerability? That sounds promising, actually. <laughs> and I suppose one word for it is control. It's actually the dream of the world as a machine. If I could control the world and guarantee that it will give me what I want when I want it, I would have all the authority I want and none of the vulnerability I fear. But actually what this is, is the promise of what the Bible calls idolatry. Because every idol's promise, every idol makes actually two promises. You shall be like God and you shall not surely die. So those are the promises the serpent makes on behalf of the fruit, right? And what are those promises? It's you shall be like God, lots of authority, and you shall not surely die. Minimal vulnerability. You're not as dependent as you think you are. And the story that Scripture narrates is the image bearers, the ones who are meant to be up and to the right in this graph, high authority, high vulnerability, deciding, I think it would be better if we could find a way to have authority without risk, and so they turn to things that they think image a God who will give them that kind of power to live up and to the left. And this actually generates another thing, 
which goes very closely with idolatry in the scriptures, and that's injustice. Because injustice is just a social system in which some people have a lot of authority without vulnerability, but it is always at the price of other people having vulnerability without authority. Hmm. Selah, the psalmist would say. That means, hey, pay attention. Or it means extended guitar solo. I'm not sure, but it means one of those two things. Right? Injustice is a social system where some people get to live with incredible amounts of authority and very little risk, but it's always at the price of other people living with all kinds of risk and no authority. That's an unjust system. Whenever you see that kind of disparity, and it's always unequal and disproportionate, it's always a few up and to the left and a lot down and to the right. Injustice, idolatry, and poverty are intrinsically linked in the minds of the Hebrew prophets who are the ones who first put this all together. The prophets will turn on a dime from talking about false gods to talking about unjust social arrangements and back. Because they're actually both the same thing. They're people trying to pursue authority without vulnerability. And I think that in human affairs, there is a kind of law of conservation of vulnerability, which is to say, you can't actually get rid of it. You can only offload it onto someone else. If you want to live without risk, you are going to have to give that risk to somebody else or actually force that risk upon somebody else. In fact, the only way to live up into the left is through violence. Because the world is not a machine. It's not designed to give you control. The world is risky. For God to create the world was risky. And so if you want to live a dream of a machine-like world that will give you what you want when you want it with no risk, you will have to find other people to exploit to give you that. So you could arrive on the shores of the eastern, uh, the eastern shore of the United States, find incredibly fertile land of Virginia, discover an incredible market for tobacco, and realize the profits that could come your way and the way of your family, but realize how much labor is required to, ex to plant that very, uh, tobacco is a very ground-depleting, nutrient-depleting crop. It's going to be incredibly hard, back-breaking, mosquito-ridden work, and what if you could import human beings no longer treated as human beings to do all that work and you could get all the profit and they would suffer all of the risk. The whole system of slavery, ancient, uh, early modern and modern, is built on some people wanting to live up and to the left and, but in order to live there you have to press other people through violence into service down into the right. And a few people maybe can eke out a kind of safety, <laughs> can sort of stay in their parents' basements and <laughs> not take a lot of risk, but actually to live there, you have to be benefiting in some way from injustice. So a couple things to say about this, then I'll try to wrap up doing my next 30 minutes of material in the remaining nine minutes. In, so the world we're meant to have is up and to the right. Uh, whichever way my hand should go for you, <laughs> up and to the right. From safety to image bearing, we're meant to move into greater and greater dominion over the world and greater and greater risk. The world we actually have is this world, a world balanced along a line between exploitation, idolatry, and injustice, and those who cannot extricate themselves from that system. In fact, what's, what the pursuit of status is in human cultures is the desire to move up this arrow up to the upper left. And status is basically a ranking of how much authority you have and how little vulnerability you have to bear. 
One more thing we should talk about, and that's privilege. So what would happen if you gradually, perhaps over many generations, accumulated benefits from actually exercising authority and risk? Well, one thing you can do is you can start to accumulate all these benefits. So get, let me give an example. I wrote a book eight years ago called Culture Making. Um, a couple of you have read it and like it. <laughs> KG will tell you how, how great it is, apparently. Uh, so I wrote this book, and it happened to connect with an audience, and it sold fine. It sold better than we expected. So uh, I actually made back my advance, which never happens to authors. If you're a writer, don't ever expect this to happen to you. It hasn't happened to me ever again since. But with this book, every October, it's going to happen very soon, I get a royalty check. Uh, now, this is not a massive royalty check, but it's a multi-thousand dollar royalty check most years. And I have done nothing to work for it. It just keeps showing up every fall. Now, I have come to sort of expect it and anticipate it and you know, offer to take my wife out to dinner before it actually arrives and that kind of thing. But I do nothing to earn it. I don't take any risk for it. I took tons of risk writing that book back in 2005 to 2008. I really did exercise both authority and vulnerability as I wrote that book. But now, I don't have to do any of that. I just get the uh, royalties. That's privilege. It's the benefits that continue to accumulate even when you've stopped being vulnerable. And somebody asked me, what does privilege feel like recently? They were like, you know, talk about what kind of what does it feel like to have privilege? And I said, it's delicious. <laughs> It's delightful. It's like, wow, this is awesome. But that's only when you notice it. I notice it because I have these checks that arrive. But all the really powerful forms of privilege in my life are less like a royalty check coming in the mail, and they're more like another delicious experience I sometimes have, which is a tailwind when you're riding a bike. So I get on my bike every day I can. In Philadelphia, this is about seven days a year, or the kind of weather you have here a lot, a lot of the time. So I'm out on my bike, and some days you're riding with the wind. And what do you think when you are a biker riding with a strong, nice, stiff tailwind behind you? You think, I am an awesome biker. <laughs> I, am like, I am crushing my personal best right now. And the very nature of biking and the way the wind works is you can't feel it. You literally cannot sense it until you turn around. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that was not me. And a lot of privilege is like this invisible, insensible breeze at your back that's the accumulation of all kinds of exercise of power, some of them quite creative, some of them quite coercive. And I inherit, and many of us in this room inherit, all those things, and they just blow us along. And what direction do they blow us? They blow us away from vulnerability. So privilege is what what happens when you no longer have to exercise vulnerability, but then how do we use it? We use it to insulate ourselves and to retreat from vulnerability. And my privilege as a white man in America, among any other, many other categories we could list, is that there are all kinds of systems accumulated over generations that prevent me from feeling vulnerable in all kinds of situations, and usually prevent me from even seeing that those systems exist. And every once in a while, the veil drops and you see it. This morning at 6 a.m. I got up to get something from Starbucks. I went down to the lobby of my hotel and I walked out of the elevator into an altercation, a, a, a very uh, angry confrontation between 
a security guard and a, a guy who wanted to come in and talk on his cell phone. Um, I didn't see the beginning. I didn't see the end. All I saw was this kind of very tense, heated conversation. And the first thing I heard as I stepped out of the elevator were, was the white security guard saying, don't play the race card. <laughs> and even without knowing what had come before or what was going to come next, I knew what was happening is that a young black man was being ejected from the hotel, was complaining about the way he was being treated, and the, and the security guard was saying, you can't say this is because of race, it's because of your behavior. I have no idea what was going on. <laughs> it's only because I stepped out of the elevator at that moment that I experienced a whole system put in place to protect me, not primarily, I think, because I'm white, but just because I'm a guest at the hotel, from any kind of inconvenience, any kind of difficulty that might be created by a young man needing a quiet place to make a cell phone call at 6 in the morning, which didn't seem like a big deal to me. But that whole system normally would be completely invisible to me. But it's actually built on the reality or the threat of violence. And I just happened to stumble out of the elevator half awake into this incredible exertion of violence and a very appropriate, or I don't know, maybe it wasn't appropriate, pushback and kind of violent reaction. So people say, well, there's a lot of violence in black communities in the United States. I'm like, well, you should have seen the violence that was done for 400 years to that community. Because the violence is reciprocal. It begins from the holders of idolatry and injustice who create this system that exploits human beings, that denies them their image-bearing dignity, and inevitably there will be a violent counter-reaction as those uh, people who live in exploitation try to somehow eke out of the world what they need to survive and live as human beings. But make no mistake about where violence comes from in human affairs. It comes from the upper left corner from idolatry, injustice, and the quest for control, and the use of other people to give you that. Yeah. Yeah. So to the extent you have privilege, I hope you really admire my beautiful graphics. I, it's like, man, I'm coming to San Francisco with like the ugliest graphics I can possibly. I didn't use Comic Sans, however, so I do have that going for me. What privilege allows you to do is either you can move up to the left into kind of idolatry and injustice, benefit for a while from that system, or you can move down and just, just feel safe, just feel protected. We have a saying in my family, the only thing money can buy is bubble wrap. The only thing money can buy is a kind of insulation from the world and privilege lets you purchase that if you want to. But having purchased it, you won't just be insulated from pain and suffering. You'll be insulated from love, from real feeling, from real relationship, because all those things require vulnerability. And so the most privileged communities in our nation or any nation are the loneliest communities, the most disconnected communities, the communities with the most hidden pain that can never be healed because it is completely encased in protection. The fascinating drama of the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, is who gets chosen over and over. You could narrate the whole Bible as this question of who's God going to choose? Abel rather than Cain, Jacob rather than Esau, Moses rather than Aaron, David rather than Saul, the New Testament, Paul, rather than the amazing rhetorician, Apollos. Who's God going to choose? What's interesting about each of these pairings, each of these contests for chosenness, is that God always ends up choosing the more vulnerable of the two. Consistently chooses the younger brother. 
you know, Aaron was Moses' older brother, but Moses is the one we all remember. Aaron was just like the PR guy. <laughs> Moses was younger, but he also stammered. He couldn't speak. And yet he's the agent of God's deliverance, and Aaron's just the spokesperson. Why? I think it leads to our third question, which I have to do quickly, very quickly. The third question in the Bible is, how can the true image be restored? In a world full of false images, a world full of idols, a world full of injustice, how can we find our way back to the true image of God? And the key to the question of who is chosen is that God consistently chooses the weaker of the alternatives in order to restore the vulnerability that is missing from his image bearers. And this comes to a climax, of course, in the arrival of Jesus, who is completely indifferent to status, completely indifferent to privilege. He, it's not so much that he is against them, he just hardly notices them. So you can be the ruler of the synagogue in a little town, and your 12-year-old daughter can be at the point of death, Come to Jesus. You're probably the most powerful man in town. Ask him to come to your house and he'll start following you back to your house to heal your daughter. But you can also be a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years, who's been, by that condition, exiled from the community, hasn't probably been touched by another human being in 12 years, and you can think to yourself, if I could just get up and touch his robe, maybe I'll be healed, and touch it, and you will be healed, and Jesus will not let it stop there. He won't let you treat him as a little healing machine that where you just get your magical healing and then go away and don't address the deeper thing. He's going to stop in the middle of that crowd and say, wait, who touched me? And search until he finds you, and then he's going to have you tell your whole story, the 12 years of doctors and failed treatments and depression and disappointment, and then he will say, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> and it strikes me in this story, which you can read in Mark 5, if I'm not mistaken, that that woman who's all vulnerability, when Jesus stops and finds her, learns her story, he elevates her to a position of authority. And of course, what happens to the father of the 12-year-old girl, Jairus? He's a man of tremendous authority. But while Jesus is talking to this woman, people come from Jairus' house and say, your daughter has died. And so Jairus, who was all authority, is now brought to the place every parent would most fear to go, the ultimate vulnerability, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus turns out to not care about privilege, or status, he just cares about daughters. So how should we live? We are meant to be the image bearers and the image restorers. Those who use power in the way of Israel and the way of Jesus. Who use our power not to coerce not to control, but to create, and use our power to go to the places of vulnerability and restore authority. This requires us to renounce the quest for status, 
to refuse to be ranked on that completely distorted line between idolatry and poverty, to not be defined either by our success or by our failure, and instead, if we find ourselves with certain amounts of privilege and power, and everyone in this room, no matter your background, has quite a bit of that to be able to be here on a night like this, that our job is to add vulnerability to the authority we already have, to match our vulnerability to our power and privilege, to, to over-index. It'll feel like over-indexing on vulnerability. It'll actually just be restoring the proper risk that we're meant to take as image bearers of God. And then, for those of us, and this is also true for every one of us in this room in some way, if you're part of a story of exclusion, of injustice, of that lower right corner, of vulnerability without authority, I know everyone in this room has tasted that. To actually be granted by God the authority you are meant to have, but not to leave your vulnerability behind, it is actually what God will use redemptively in his image-restoring mission. The very vulnerability you bear is actually God's material for restoring his image in the world. Let me show you a picture. It was painted by the American artist Henry Sala Tanner, the same one who painted the Annunciation that I showed earlier. And in the late 19th century, Tanner painted this picture, the banjo lesson. On the surface, it's a very simple painting. <laughs> An old man in a simple home introduces a young boy to playing the banjo, and the boy's hands are on the strings and on the neck as the old man supports the neck with his left hand. The old man's right hand, which would normally pick the banjo, is just sitting on his lap. And to me, this is a picture of creative power. Because what's happening here is the multiplication of possibility. The old man, as he lets this boy learn the banjo, is not giving up any of his power to play the banjo. Instead, he's multiplying that power, giving it to this boy in this environment of total trust and love. You can see the boy is just totally free of anxiety at this moment, totally able just to explore and play. No fear of failure, no fear of what's outside, just discovering music together. And you can just look at this as just a beautiful picture of authority and vulnerability all on its own. But it's something more than that. And you have to know something about Henry Osawa Tanner. Henry Osawa Tanner was the first African American to reach the heights of the international art world. He exhibited in the salons in Paris to great acclaim. He eventually moved to France, spent the last part of his career in France, but he began at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts under the tutelage of Thomas Aikens who painted him. Aikens painted his favorite students. <laughs> and he painted Henry Osawa Tanner. And when Henry Osawa Tanner, an American of African descent, the son, by the way, of a bishop in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, whose dad wanted him to be a clergyman, but he wanted to be an artist, so he went to San Francisco, well, actually to Philadelphia. <laughs> when this man paints a banjo lesson, it's not a random choice of subjects. Because the banjo had a very specific meaning in 19th century American culture, and it's represented in this image. This is an etching, contemporary with Tanner's painting, of a minstrel performing on the banjo 
on a stage for an audience whose faces we can just barely see in the background. The faces are white. This man, one of the tragedies and horrors of this image is we don't actually know whether this is a, actually an African-American artist or whether it's a white person in blackface imitating black culture. Either way, he's isolated, forced to perform in this suit, this kind of vaudeville or minstrel suit. And to understand Tanner's painting, you really have to put these two next to each other. On the left, this image, I mean, look how awkward that image is on the left. How unhuman it is. How, ex how degrading it is to be forced to perform your culture as just mere entertainment for other people. And that's what the banjo meant in Henry Tanner's time. And so when Henry Tanner paints the banjo lesson, it's not an accident. <laughs> He's saying, I want to restore an image. I want to show you what the banjo is really about. I want to show you the dignity of, of the culture that I inherited and want to pass on. And the beautiful thing about this horrible, I, it's a horrible juxtaposition, and the beautiful thing is you'll never see that awful drawing on the left again in your life. But this painting was reproduced hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of times in the early 20th century. And if you know an American of African descent, it's almost certain they had like a grandmother or an aunt who had it in their house. Because it restored an image. It restored the image of a people. What are we here in the world to do? To worship the God who is true creative power. To be the ones who bear his image. And to restore that image wherever it's been lost. Thank you very much for your time and attention tonight. Wow. What a what a gift you are. Thank you. That was Thank you, Dave. That was incredible. That was I don't even know I don't I don't know. I don't even know what to do. Like we could do Q and A, but I feel like I feel like you should get on the piano and sing again. Um, <laughs> we're gonna we will take some questions though, um, and uh, and let you elaborate. I know we we all wish that you can just keep going, and uh, maybe you can just elaborate on some of the other stuff that you didn't get to touch on through some good questions. So um, there'll be some a mic upstairs and a mic downstairs, and. Uh, would love for you guys to ask, press in, ask questions about, or maybe even tonight, if you feel like something really struck you and you just want to just don't go for a long time. I know that some of you guys don't have any concept of what that means. Meaning like, don't go for like longer than 25 seconds. Um, but if something struck you and you want to say like, that, that struck me, and, uh, and it might not even be a question, but it's something that you just really feel like you need to get out like that, that really, that really struck me. Then, um, I think there should be room for that tonight as well. Just a special night. Um, so yeah, I'll start by someone raising their hand up here. Or right there. <laughs> First of all, thank you. Um, I really appreciate the, the way that you described all that. Provided kind of a framework to, I think, questions that exist in my own mind and maybe a lot of us sitting in this room. Um, one thing that I was trying to think about when 
applying that framework to the world that we live in. Um, so capitalism inherently sounds like idolatry, <laughs> um, especially <laughs> when looking at the actions of a corporation as a person. Um, yes. As American Christians, how do we be image, image bearers in a job that is very closely driven by capitalism? Uh, all right, right into the deep end of the pool. Um, is it on? It's on. It's like on? microphone confusion night for some reason. All right. So, yes, it does sound like idolatry, and I'll tell you why it does. It ends in the in the three words ism ism pretty much whenever you hear ism it's a good thing that's been turned into an idol and and by the way idols are only made of good things because they're made out of creation creation is good but it's when you take creation and you elevate it to the state of this will allow us to have authority without vulnerability that you have a problem so capital is good I want, I want to say, we could have a long conversation about exactly how that might be true or not true, but I, I think actually capital is a feature of, of economies that's a good thing. Capitalism is the, the raising of the priorities of capital to idolatrous status. Common life, where we share from each according to their abilities and each according to their needs, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Communism raises that principle to the level of an ideology that generated the most profound injustice in the 20th century. Marx was an image bearer of God with some really good ideas. Marxism, not so good. Calvin, oh wait, no, no. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was hoping for that one. <laughs> so, how do we live when in fact we live in a world full of idolatry and injustice? And we're embedded in those systems, and specifically in the capitalist one. <laughs> Let me see if I can remember this phrase. It, uh, and I cannot remember whether it comes from Walter Brueggemann or, or maybe Dallas Willard. I think it was from Dallas Willard. Um, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember the exact phrase at this moment, but, but he said something so good about how we live in these broken systems. He said, with gentle, insistent non-cooperation with evil. So there, there are lots of things about the systems we're in that on the whole reflect human image bearing. But there are some things that are very distorted. And it is our job to gently, patiently, insistently not cooperate with those aspects of them. And they are basically the ones that deny image bearing dignity to people. Yeah. And the best way to do this is the closest way to you. So we can all get excited about you know, big ideological controversies and protests, but those of us who work in these kind of environments need to ask who in my immediate work group, in the building I work in, is rendered invisible, prevented from having authority, not recognized as a human being, and how can I non-cooperate with that? And just that would go a long way, I think, towards being a redemptive presence. And then we could have long conversations about how to handle things like competition and liquidity and uh, other things that are features of our modern economic system. But I'd start just by asking, who are the people who are being exploited right around me, and how do I not cooperate with that in some visible way? We have one up here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for your talk. We're so grateful you're here. So thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, I guess my question is kind of, um, 
to do with the notion that, to me, the Bible speaks so much into these situations that you've been talking about tonight. And, you know, Christ's teachings are absolutely full of overturning notions of injustice that we you know, perpetuate onto other people, exactly what you're talking about. And I don't know if other people share this experience as well, but it seems to be that, um, for me, certainly, until <laughs> I came to Reality SF, funnily enough, that had never been preached on in huh. church. Right. And to me, like, week on week on week, when you go out into the street and you see these situations of oppression and injustice everywhere, you turn on your Facebook and there's some poor black guy dying because he's been shot by a cop, and it's, like, infuriating. And yet there's such an absence from the pulpit about huh. these situations. I, well, certainly I found. Um, and I don't know if you just had a comment on that or whether the faith can sometimes be a part of that oppression and, I don't know, just any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, well, it's important to say, and, I, and I, I don't mean this in any way as a, um, I, I think what you're saying describes something very real that, that I also can identify. It's important to say it depends on which church you're in. <laughs> so if you're in a church that benefits from the privilege of the majority and the systems that protect and support the majority, you don't hear about these things. But there are, there are other churches, <laughs> and they sing, wait in the water, God's going to trouble the water. That's a prophetic song that says, dare to risk confrontation with injustice because God is going to stir up something that will ultimately bring about a, a revolution towards the way that God intended the world to be. And in those churches, you do hear uh, about it very specifically sometimes, and sometimes less so. And there are some churches, even in minority communities, that, that struggle with... Um, <laughs> There's issues, there, there are idolatry, uh, uh, maybe it's not for me to speak to, but I have, I've had the privilege of, of living and working specifically in black churches. And sometimes there's a pursuit of a kind of respectability and a respectable position in society that makes it hard to name injustice, even sometimes in, in minority churches. But I would say generally there is far more honesty, access, and application of the gospel to those conditions. So why is it that that hasn't been the case in the majority culture? It's because it's mostly invisible. So there's not a lot of initial guilt related to this. It's just simply the whole system is designed to prevent you from ever seeing it. So if you're a pastor in that community, it just never comes up. It's not salient. Um, and then there have been ideologies, isms, that then reinforce that and explain why this is the way the world was actually meant to be. And God isn't actually concerned about that social justice stuff because that's something liberal Christians care about and we care about the gospel. And that's a total distortion and bifurcation that never was meant to be. Um, but those, those ideologies really support just an invisibility, I think. It's time for that. that that's, that's over, <laughs> in my opinion, because uh, it was never right. And it, it actually robs you of the, what the gospel is about, which is the restoration of the image in every possible way. Salah, guitar solo. Uh, down here. Okay. You know, I think it's incumbent on people who have benefited from privilege to make the changes. You know, when you, we think about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King did not come from a poor family. Yes. He benefited from yes. privilege. Yes, 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 yes. He recognized that because he was privileged, 
he had an obligation to go back and try and make a difference. And I think there's a part in the Bible that says, um, feed my sheep. Huh. Wow. And I think God is telling us, you know, those of us who have benefited from privilege, have success, have excess to share it. Yeah, yeah beautiful. And, and, I, and when you think about um, cliches are based in truth. Huh. Ooh. Think about things. Ooh. Cliches are based in truth. That is so good. And when you think about a, a pebble thrown and the ripples, it goes throughout. So it can start very, very small, but it has a major impact. And if you think about the larger picture, it can paralyze you. You'll think, uh. there's nothing I can do. It's overwhelming. It's impossible. But if you try to do one small thing, if all of us just did one small thing, mm. it teaches people we serve as role models, and it will change the world. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much. Anyway. Real quick, could you speak to that? I know that, like you said, this room, just by the fact that you live in San Francisco, I would imagine you have a lot of privilege. And um, can you speak to that? Like what, I mean, uh, that's such a, uh, an important point that um, growing up with privilege doesn't mean that we're, we're like, A, ashamed of it and just go, I'm just gonna ignore it. Would you, would you speak to what do we do then with that? People with privilege that have these great jobs and live in this great city, how do we then leverage our privilege or use our privilege to go down to the, what, what would you say to that? It's such an important topic and thank you very much for, for raising it. Um, because I think we can have this idea that um, <laughs> it, it can be very paralyzing to, to come to an awareness of privilege. But actually I think privilege is always a resource. It's, it's actually, it's the benefits of past exercises of power. So if you have parents who made your education a priority, which I would guess would be true for the great majority of people in this room, you had other people who acted on your behalf and gave you opportunity. And that's, an, that's absolutely a gift. The only question is, do you use it to buy bubble wrap? <laughs> yeah. Or do you invest it in risk? Yeah. So the thing to do with your privilege is to invest it on behalf of the vulnerable by making yourself vulnerable alongside them. Now, it's slightly different, by the way, from having a good job. You mentioned that. Yeah. I put that in a little different category. I think the work we do is largely day-to-day. -to, -day. to some extent, it's, it's an opportunity for a lot of risk in and of itself. Unless I'm using my good job as a way to avoid what I'm really meant to do. But a good job in and of itself is just, that's the thing you're to do as an image bearer. It's, it, it may eventually lead to privilege, but, but to the extent it does, then you ask, how do I now turn around and take whatever extra royalties I'm getting? Economists call this rent seeking, right? We, we seek rent, which is uh, it's an economic way of talking about privilege, basically. It's stuff you get that you, you do the work even if you didn't get it. <laughs> um, and so it's like, excess stock options or something. I don't know. I don't get any of these, but I hear people do somewhere, <laughs> right? So what you decide is all of that excess, I'm going to double down and invest it back in way more risk in some way, rather than doing what almost everyone does with their privilege was like, okay, now I can head to safety. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Does that make sense? 
And that's what Dr. King did, because he did his PhD at Boston University, where I happen to have the privilege of, of studying. And, uh, and rather, he could have taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He had any job open to him. He decides to go back to Atlanta, where his, his father had been pastor at Ebenezer, and, and double down on investing his doctoral education in, in leading a movement uh, for the restoration of the image of God, which yeah. is what it was. Uh, and that's, that's a beautiful model of what, what we all can do with whatever we've accumulated and been, been granted. That's good. Oh. Uh, thanks, down here. Yeah. Uh, resonated with a lot of things you said, especially the, what did you call it, the love, the conservation, uh, conservation of vulnerability, vulnerability and yeah. how anytime I don't have it, someone else has double. Yes. Uh, I think particularly great, too, just to see a white guy talking about it. So super encouraged. I actually have a question that someone in the balcony texted down that I agree oh, with. Oh, great. Uh, Technology. So two of, at least two of us would love to know. Uh, you talked about just giving up points like in our jobs and in the world where we can just kind of quietly say no to evil things that are happening or step in. Could you maybe speak to where you think there's a point where just non-participation ends and huh. we actually have a responsibility to more action? Yes. <laughs> there, is, there is that point. And I don't know that I dare to say or know how to say in some generalizable way where it is. But it's essentially the point where a, a system needs a prophet. So the prophetic vocation in Israel is one of the recognized ways that God leads Israel. It's interesting, Israel doesn't, one of the many interesting things about Israel compared to its neighbors is they don't just have one kind of um, priest king. So in all the other cultures around Israel, the priests and the kings are the same group of people. In Israel, you first separate that, and the priests are different from the kings. So you've already got, you know, we'd call it in America, separation of powers, um, which already starts to address certain kinds of inequities or concentration of power. But then Israel adds this role, or God adds, <laughs> this role of the prophet. The prophet is neither priest nor king, and the prophet's job is to name idolatry and injustice. So when David, who's meant to be leading the people as a king, uh, actually uh, exploits his neighbor Uriah and exploits Uriah's wife Bathsheba in this uh, forced sexual encounter, because how can it not be forced when the king of Israel calls for you to come to his, his apartment, um, and then commits murder, um, that is, that's like textbook. And oh, wow, I loved how you mentioned this law of conservation of vulnerability might not be quite right because it almost seems like it, it gets doubly borne by others. And think about what happens. One person, David, benefits from that act of exploitation, but two people suffer. Well, actually, whole generations suffer, not just, but, but even just Bathsheba and Uriah, the whole kingdom eventually yeah. suffers, right? So one guy gets one moment of, of um, satisfaction and pleasure and power and the expense is like multi-generational vulnerability for all of Israel and the whole Davidic line of kings. Whoa, oh my gosh. So um, the job of the prophet, in this case his name is Nathan, is to come to the king and prophets do two things. They foretell and they foretell. So they foretell, they speak forth the reality of what's happening. And in, in this case, Nathan does it by telling a story of this guy who doesn't have a lamb and, or has lots of lambs and, but borrows his neighbor's lamb and you know. And so Nathan names what's going on that otherwise would not get named. But then the other, things prophets, the other thing prophets do is they say, this cannot continue. The law of the universe uh, 
is that you cannot stay up and to the left, and so your exploitation is going to have consequences, and Nathan spells out what the consequences are going to be for David, for his household, and for his whole line of kingship and for Israel. And so I don't know when is the time that you might be called to be a prophet in a given place and system, and I think it requires tremendous discernment and community and ultimately the calling of God, but at the right time, sometimes someone has to go and, and forth tell and foretell. Tell the truth and then say what the consequences are going to be. That's what prophets do. Yes? Hey, Andy, thanks for sharing. Um, I, the part that resonated with me the most is the picture of authority and vulnerability. And my question is, I feel like there's a certain sense of imagination, like how we can go into, how we go and choose vulnerability if we have authority. And I feel like I have a picture of that on what that could look like on an individual level, but what does that look like for a whole community? What does that look like for like the whole, like a church as a whole to, to do that together? Yeah. Wow. This is your next book idea right here. <laughs> mm. No, it's above my pay grade. Um, because it, in a way it's really about leadership. So, there are, there are absolute, so let me put it this way. Every community has vulnerabilities already. In fact, in a certain, in a, see, in a certain sense, we don't have to choose vulnerability. It's already there. It's there in every life. I mean, for one thing, uh, 100 years from now, everyone in this room will die, will be dead, I think, unless Peter Thiel succeeds. And uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that's an idol. All right, I'm just going to like go out on a limb and say the desire to never die and to be like God in that respect might be idolatry and thus will fail. I'm going to be that minimally prophetic. Tealism. <laughs> Tealism. Um, and all of us live with that vulnerability. The horizon of our life and agency is so small. And we are all conscious of it in some way. And we all also repress it in all kinds of ways. Then we're part of a city that is full of vulnerability. You just have to have your eyes open and you realize as, as beautiful as the things are that happen here, as wonderful as the opportunities are here for some, it, there is so much, I mean, really literally mess um, around us because we have not been able to hold together a real community, which is the tragedy of every city. So the vulnerability doesn't have to be found, it's actually there but it has to be named and owned and born rather than repressed. So I'm completely influenced in this, and none of what I would say about this is original. I'm very influenced by Ronald Heifetz, who teaches leadership at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And what Heifetz says in one of his books is called Leadership Without Easy Answers. That's kind of his first book um, that's very good on this, is that the job of a leader is to lead their community to, to bearing and addressing the vulnerability that's already there. And what every community wants is a leader that tells them we don't have vulnerability, which is why leaders get assassinated when they say we do. <laughs> so leader, communities assassinate leaders who don't seem to deliver on the promise of authority without vulnerability. And Heifetz says the challenge of leadership is how do you lead people into vulnerability without getting assassinated? Um, so that's your job, uh, Dave, among others. Uh, a bunch of these folks over here. Um, and so, by the way, the beautiful thing is you don't have to have a title to be a leader. So I, 
even as I turned to Dave and made that joke, I felt awkward. Because yes, that's part of the role that Dave inhabits. But actually, it's a, that role of leading people to real vulnerability that's already there and creating what Heifetz calls a holding environment where the community can handle it mm -hmm. and can believe we won't be completely destroyed if we address this, but there's actually a better way out, out and through this. Yeah. That can be played by anyone. So in the civil rights era, Linda Baines Johnson Jr. has, has titled authority, and he has to do part of this job for, for the civil rights movement to succeed. Ultimately, he has to sign a bill, if nothing else. But he also has to lead in all kinds of other ways. But Martin Luther King Jr., though he has tremendous privilege and education, doesn't occupy a position of, of power in the culture, but he can also lead. So when you define leadership as helping a community bear necessary suffering and making it possible for them to bear it, Anybody can do that. Anybody can play a role in that. I think that's a good segue. I want to take one more question. I see someone has a mic up there, but just right, just a second to why our staff put together these race intensive was a place to be really vulnerable huh. as a community to talk about some of the stuff that we deal with or don't deal with or need to be like kind of woke to that we just don't see privilege or um, so that that's a good just invitation again to be at these nights um, so we can be vulnerable together um, in uncomfortable ways, but important ways to move forward. So, up here. Yeah. Hey, um, can you this on? Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, by the way, thank you for giving a great talk. Honestly, it was, it was really cool to, to hear that. Um, so, in scripture, we constantly hear the warnings of the deception of wealth. And um, I think it's interesting how uh, I think we can't see the invisible hand that is pushing the bike, right? Um, and yet it leads to an increased pride, an increased sense of self-worth. Um, and I, I see that this is like really common also in San Francisco culture. Huh. And I guess my question to you is, how do you guard your heart from the excesses of wealth? Um, it's being poor is very different. You, you're very open to your vulnerability. Um, right. But when you're born in a life that is guarded um, with safety and privilege and whatever else, um, you don't often see. You don't often see the necessity of vulnerability. Also, you know. And so, how do you yes. protect, yeah protect your heart? That's good. Wow, beautiful. You know, I, I want to just flag something you said at the very beginning, which is that there's a kind of deception, I think that's the word you used, that's at work in the world. And, and we need to remember the biblical worldview is there is a deceiver actively injecting this idea into our lives. You should have authority without vulnerability. Here's how to have it. There's someone, I'm not going to say capital S someone, but a, a non-human someone, yeah. probably many of them, whose job is to convince every person here that you really need to be up and to the left or perhaps down and to the left. Which is why even people who have been raised in amazingly healthy places can find themselves in the prison of various kinds of addiction, various kinds of giving themselves over to this quest because there's this insinuation built in to the oppositional force in creation. It's, it doesn't rise to the level of being equal to God, but it is in opposition to God. And we cannot be ignorant, like it says in the Bible, right? Don't be ignorant of his deceptions. Yeah. There's someone actively trying to persuade you to not take a risk. I, and 
I mean, to be a little prophetic, like I, just because I know human beings, everyone in this room, there's some risk that you have contemplated taking, that there's some voice saying, no, 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 I think I'll just stay safe. Wow. So specifically with regard to wealth, um, a couple things. I mean, the most basic, the, the most basic remedy for idolatry is worship of the true God. <laughs> so you've got to worship the real God, the creator God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you are drawn into worship, and that's part of why I wanted to take a little time for us just to taste a little bit of what that's like, and I know you get to, you get to do this at Reality. It, it is a kind of inoculation against the thin lies of any other potential God. Because really, like, can you say, has anyone ever sung to money the way we sang at the beginning? And I mean, we were just getting warmed up. <laughs> right? Sure. I mean, I don't know. Uh, there's probably like some thin pop song about money, 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 I like my money. I don't know. You know, Jerry, Jerry Maguire. I don't know. Like, but like the ecstasy that money can produce is so thin once you've tasted actual worship in a gathered community of people being remade in the image of Christ. It's like, why would I ever worship that stupid thing? Yeah. Yeah. So start with worship and then introduce disciplines into your life that constantly are dethroning that idol. Yeah. And the one that dethrones money is generosity. Yeah. So saving money and spending money are both fine, but when you really see both of those, you stay in control of money when you save it and when you spend it. But when you give it, by definition, you concede control and therefore you break the power of the promise of money that wants to tell you if you have me out, you'll have control. Yeah. So. Give it, give it away, and give more, more of it away. I, someone asked me on Twitter the other day, how, I'm going on too long. No. no okay, one, one more minute. Asked me, he said, I work with all these young people, they're worried about getting into a career because of ungodly ambition for wealth. I was like, oh my gosh, that's like the easiest one. Money, but money is both the most powerful God and the easiest God to dethrone in your life. Now pride, I have no idea how you get rid of that, but. <laughs> Money, I can tell you exactly how to handle it, especially if you're young. Decide, I'm going to live my whole life at the absolute maximum at the 95th percentile of American income. So I'm going to live on more money than 19 out of 20 American households. And if you want to throw in a cost of living adjustment, go for it. It would be about $300,000 in San Francisco. So that's not a small amount of money. I recognize most in the room probably don't make that. But just decide. We're, my household is going to top out at that. And when you're 20 years old, you'd be like, anybody can do that. Like, you can live on $300,000 a year. I really believe it is possible, right? You would believe that 20? Almost no one who's 50 who makes that amount thinks it's possible. So you decide when you're 20, this is my ceiling, and everything I make above that, I'm going to give away for the rest of my life. If you do that, uh, and some other basic things like Sabbath, and you will, you will not, you, you'll have lots of other idols you'll deal with, but money won't be one. It's so easy, it's so easy. If you don't do it when you're young, and you get to be my age, what you find out is, th there's this amazing chart, I wish I had time to show it, now I'm really going on too long, uh, that shows that as Americans make more money, they give less as a percentage of their income. I call it idolatry in one graph. It's that the more you make, the less you give. 
That's because the more you make, the more money gets its claws into you. Yeah. Doesn't have to be so for us. Choose what's an appropriate amount to live on. Live on it for the rest of your life. Give everything else away if God should bless in that way and you happen to have that. And if you don't, it's okay. God will provide in all kinds of other ways. Good. Right, right here. Um, I think the crux of what you're saying that is most challenging for me is the fact that um, I keep struggling with the idea that we live, like I think we live in a closed system that's a zero-sum game. Yes. So basically if I give away, like if I lose, someone else wins. If I win, someone else loses. And I feel like that's what we've been taught. And I know yes. scripture is the opposite. It's trying to say we live in an open system with a God who's abundant and can inject resources and we are not living um, in a closed system. But I feel like my experience from living <laughs> tells me it's closed ah, yes. and I'm a loser if I give. Um, and I just wow. think it's hard to grapple with that. Even every one of us in this room, if we're living in San Francisco, we are contributing to gentrification. We, we win because someone lost and had to leave the city or live homeless as a homeless person here. And that's a reality. And I don't know that we even want to deal with what that means, that we are actually contributing actively to displacement and the affordable housing crisis. So I don't know. It's just tough because I think it's easy to have these conversations. Well, not that easy to have them, but it's easier to have these conversations than actually do something concrete about it where we give up, share our power so that others might have power. Well said, and I wouldn't, I mean, uh, I don't want to even elaborate too much except just to underscore, <laughs> it, it depends on the frame. If you look through a scarcity frame, then everything's about status and rank. It's about how can I move up, and for me to move up one notch, somebody else has to move down one notch. There are other frames for every system that are abundance frames. And that includes housing, I believe. I'm not an expert in this area. But um, I, I, do, I do not, uh, I, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I, I don't accept the premise that there's only a scarcity frame even for housing in cities. Uh, now, it would take tremendous political will. It would take tremendous political imagination and creativity. And it, it does require, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of affordability issues are because of enforced scarcity to actually preserve privilege. It's because we don't want to build certain amounts of density. There's all kinds of reasons that, that we can't create affordable and mixed income uh, housing solutions. And most of them have to do with not wanting to, uh, with, with a kind of scare, imposing scarcity on a system. And sometimes it comes from natural scarcity, like natural boundaries, like the, the water around this city and so forth that makes it like you can't expand very easily unless you do another Peter Thiel thing and move to a floating yacht uh, that's your whole nation. Um, but anyway, who, who, if not Christians, should be the ones leading, A, the prophetic observation that some people are vulnerable because we're prospering, and B, it doesn't have to be that way, and let's work together to be imaginative and create a new kind of political imagination. That should be the political function of the people of God in the world. It was what Israel was, by the way. Oh, I don't have time to talk about um, tithing and uh, about um, gleaning and about the fact that Israel had a totally different agricultural system that allowed everyone to have the dignity of work, even those who weren't landowners. There were all these systems in place that didn't exist anywhere else in the ancient Near East because Israel had this picture. And then every 49 years, they would forgive all their debts, or they were supposed to. Uh, Marco Nagasawa was here and taught on that very thing. Oh, so. There you go. Go go to that one. Go watch yeah. that video. Yeah, that's great. I think we have time for maybe a half a question. 
And half so, an answer. Whatever your question is, cut it in half. And Dave Daly's going to choose. Who you choose, Dave? Oh. All right. So she said this is going to be a good closer. Okay. One thing that's been so fun to observe about you, Andy, is um, how much joy and um, esteem you give to, to just the, the room and the question oh. answer <laughs> askers and, and the conversations that come up and, and, uh, and, and, and even earlier today in our interactions, you like learning our names. And I just want you to speak to what, what are very just right now practical things that we can do that you already are practiced in, and it's very clear, that help us to, to live and interact with other humans in such a way that acknowledges that image-bearing dignity in them. Wow. So two things, and actually, I want, this was something that came up from the previous question that was so important. Commit to, with the help of friends, a process of healing from the trauma in your life that, that robs you of the ability to take joy in the abundance of the world. All of us have had the, you said, the life I've lived has taught me that there's scarcity in the world. We've all experienced that. God can heal that. Jesus wants to set you free from that, whatever it is. It could be 12 years of sickness. It could be poverty. It could be your experience of your ethnicity or race. Jesus has seen that whole thing. He was actually with you the whole time, and he has incredible redemption to bring, and you can be free of the fear that comes from that. So seek that healing so that you're not kind of bound up in self-protection and ultimately pride. Um, and by the grace of God, I've, I've been able to experience that in my own life in very powerful ways that I could share at other times. The other thing I do, it's just a very simple spiritual practice in a way, Often when I'm walking down a street, like in a city, or for me it's often an airport, <laughs> I will try to look at every person who passes me, look at their face in a non-creepy way, <laughs> and I just say to myself in my head the words, image bearer. So once I had a long layover in O'Hare, I decided to walk every kind of pier of every terminal in O'Hare. You can do about a 40-minute walk from one end to the other. And I was like, okay, I'm getting my exercise. Now what, what spiritual exercise can I do? And, and I tried for 40 minutes to watch every person I passed <laughs> in that airport. And it's amazing the diversity and variety of human beings you see in, in those kind of places. And everyone I thought, image bearer, image bearer, image bearer. Just practiced recognizing whatever this person was, if they looked happy, if they looked sad, if they looked friendly, if they looked angry, if they looked attractive, if they didn't, didn't look at all attractive, image bearer. Now, I could have gone back around the airport and said, image breaker, image breaker, because everyone is also an idolater, and a, we've all pursued the false image. But then I could have gone around again and said, you are one for whom Jesus died to restore the image in you. You are one for whom Jesus died to restore the image in you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you, for your image restoration. And I've tried to, I just try to build that in wherever I am. Um, it's overwhelming, and it's beautiful, and it's the gospel, I think. Mm. So we can practice it every single day. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much.